Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis, here on Financial Survival with co-host Melody Cedarstrom. Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188. And barring the unforeseen, our guest is here. Guest is James Corbett, who has been living and working in Japan since 2004. He started the Corbett Report in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. And he's also the editor and lead writer of the international forecaster, Bob Chapman's publication until a couple of years ago when Bob Chapman passed on. Um, we're going to talk to James about Japan for one thing and what he thinks is going to happen relative to the Ukrainian situation. And we'll get his take on a number of things. Hello, James. How are you doing? Hello, Alfred. Hello, Melody. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Hello, Glad James. You. Thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Japanese demog. Let's start with why are you in Japan? You've been there for ten years now. That's kind of an odd situation. What got you into Japan? Uh, well, actually, it was really just my own curiosity. My my, uh, I suppose uh, travel wanderlust. I wanted to see some more of the world, and I'd never been over to Asia. So I thought, hey, why why not go to Asia? And the easiest way for me to do that, I had some student loans to pay off. So I thought, well, why don't I teach English? So I, I looked it up online. The first thing that came up was a, a company here in Japan. So I applied. I got the job. And next thing I knew, I was out here. It was really just a way to travel and see a bit of the world for a year. But that turned into two years. That turned into three years. And here I am 10 years later with a wife and a child here. Mm -hmm. And so I've definitely put down some roots. What about Japanese demographics right now? We've heard reports that the Japanese society is aging that young people are reluctant to have children. They're even closing schools. How much of that is exaggerated? How much of it is true? And what are the long-term implications? Well, unfortunately, it is, uh, it is very true. And in fact, it's documentable. Um, in fact, last year, in 2013, the Japanese population fell by a record 244,000 people, which out of a population of over 126 million is, I suppose, not that much. But of course, this is just the thin edge of the wedge of the kind of demographic tidal wave that's, that's uh, about to wash over Japan in the coming decades, barring some sort of drastic turnaround. Uh, we see an extremely low birth rate here. I believe it's somewhere around the 1.2 or 1.3 uh, children per couple uh, level right now, of course, well well below the uh, the, the population's uh, sustainable population rate. So we are seeing um, a, a gradual shrinking that is about to become a very fast shrinking of the population. And in fact, it's expected to um, cut by as much as 40% by 2060. So we are definitely seeing the, the, the beginning of, uh, of a phenomenon that, in fact, is going to be happening in a lot of countries um, in, in the Western world, in the industrialized world, uh, that all have similarly low birth rates. And if it weren't for the high immigration to places like the United States, the population there would be declining as well. Um, so, of course, Japan being a quite insular society doesn't allow a lot of immigration, so their, their population is already starting to th shrink. All right. What do you think the implications are? For example, they're sitting right next to China. <coughs> and if their population is diminishing, it just stands to reason they're less and less able to defend their, their territory. That is certainly is one going of the implications, right. But uh, I, I think really the, the key thing about this is the economic implications. And we are going from a society that uh, during its uh, boom years in the post-war years was, uh, was exploding in population and exploding in economic activity. 
And so there were uh, a, a large social safety net that was created here on the back of that uh, economic growth that seemed sustainable at the time where you had several workers supporting each retiree. And now, of course, we have uh, not only a, a shrinking population, but also an aging population, as you point out. So we have more and more and more uh, people retiring. In fact, I believe uh, Japan has either just passed or is just about to pass the milestone of selling more adult diapers than children diapers, which is a pretty phenomenal thing to think about. So um, so we are definitely here in Japan facing this, this kind of demographic crisis of having very few workers supporting each retiree. I, I, I don't know the exact figure, but I believe it's now somewhere between one and two workers supporting each retiree, which is, of course, not sustainable, uh, considering the large pension system that they have here in place. And it's particularly worrying because, of course, the Japanese government is uh, the most indebted of any industrialized nation, now well over 200, I believe, approaching 250% of uh, GDP. Mm-hmm. And that is only sustainable because a lot of that debt is internal. The Japanese people have been supporting it by buying Japanese Japanese government bonds as part of their retirement uh, packages. But now that more people are retiring, they're going to stop buying those bonds and start cashing them in. And that's going to have a significant effect on Japan's ability to to basically sustain its debt levels. So uh, we're starting to see some of the same tricks that the Bank of Japan is pulling, that the Federal Reserve is pulling, which is basically just monetization of the debt. How much longer? Go ahead, Naldi. What is the inflation over there now? It's uh, in the doldrums. I don't know the uh, the figure off the top of my head, but uh, but there's been a, 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 a just a complete lack of inflation here for the last two decades uh, since the popping of the bubble. Basically, during the bubble years in the late 80s, early 90s, there was such an inflation of the economy, such a, a, a huge expansion of the economy that uh, they're still trying to grow their way out from under that uh, that expansion that took place. So there's been basically no inflation, which is what uh, uh, the whole Abenomics that we were uh, heard so much about last year is supposedly designed to do, is to, to get inflation going again in the Japanese economy, which is why they're committed to doubling the mon- monetary supply here uh, in the next two years, which started a year ago. So I suppose by next year, they're going to uh, attempt to double the, the monetary supply here. What can we learn in the United States from Japan's example? Are we on the same track? A lot of people have uh, have suggested as much. I think that there are some differences here because, of course, again, Japan being an, an island nation that relies on a lot of imports to, to fuel its economic activity and that relies on, on exports of, of technological goods um, for a lot of its economic activity, it, it puts it in a slightly different position than the United States and what uh, the issues it's facing. But there are, there are similarities. Um, certainly, um, rocketing debt levels is not something that would be foreign to, to the American audience, uh, nor the, the, the types of uh, economic uh, squabbling that goes over, on over here over, over the budget and how best to deal with this. And um, I think it's no surprise that uh, uh, Shinzo Abe, the new prime minister here, and uh, the Bank of Japan has arrived at pretty much the same formula as the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and many central banks around the world now, this idea of quantitative easing and basically just uh, uh, buying uh, their, their way out of this situation by printing money. And uh, this is all part of the, the global currency war that, uh, that's been picking up pace in the last few years and is continuing as, uh, as basically they're trying to devalue the yen. 
as a way to increase the attractiveness of their exports, which is also shooting themselves in the foot because, of course, they're also importing uh, liquid natural gas and other energy here in order to fuel their economic activity. So uh, it doesn't really uh, help in the end. And I think the Japanese people are only really just starting to realize this. And it's uh, perhaps uh, similar to what's happening in the United States with the, the gradual realization that the entire growth of the stock market since the Lehman Brothers collapse has been fueled by the Federal Reserve and is uh, is basically just paper wealth that will and yep. that can and will disappear as soon as the uh, the piper start stops playing mm-hmm. the tune. Mm-hmm. Let's go over and talk about Fukushima a little bit. I've got an article here from oh one of the executives or anonymous senior TEPCO employee. No one knows what to do at Fukushima. It's impossible to refix. Reactors not under control. We just can't deal with melted fuel. We hear a lot of stories in this country, in the United States, about how big a problem Fukushima is. Are we getting hyperbole over there, over here, or is it as, as serious as we've heard, and how do the Japanese respond to it? Well, I think it's actually a bit of both. I think that uh, depending on which sources you're looking at, there is either hyperbole or underplaying of the situation. There's very few sources out there that are, I think, reporting on a kind of level, uh, in a level way about it. Uh, Certainly, it is true that the decommissioning and decontamination of the plant at this point is not only not happening, it's not even uh, theoretically possible at this point. The technology, as 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 members of TEPCO and the Japanese Nuclear Authority here have t- talked about in the past, the technology to clean up the plant at this point does not exist because they cannot get close enough to the melted cores to even understand, to even map where they're lying or or what uh, what form they've taken. Um, let alone to start the idea of actually removing that uh, the the melted cores. So. It is a, a, a very worrying situation, specifically, of course, for for the Fukushima region. But of course, that being on the coast, it is also feeding out into the the, the Pacific Ocean, which creates obviously huge problems um, for the fisheries in the region and implications for that radiation um, reaching the the west coast of the United States, given the the ocean currents. So there are significant issues there. Um, On the other side of it, there are people who have talked about this being some sort of extinction-level event and and that sort of thing. I think that is overplayed, and uh, again, there's, there's no hard data to back up what they're talking about in terms of the radiation um, that, that uh, those types of reports would indicate. But, uh, but again, it's, uh, in Japan, it's an interesting situation because although they do talk about it, they do report about what's happening at the plant here, and it is still in the news, um, but it is not something that is part of people's daily conversation here, at least not in my part of the country, and I'm, I'm 400 miles away from the Fukushima plant and on the west side of the country, which is in many ways kind of infrastructurally separated from the east side where, where Fukushima is, so that uh, the, okay. the, the utility grid and everything is, is uh, not not the same grid. So people don't think about it or talk about it on a daily basis here, but it is certainly still part of the societal conversation and something that I think should be concerning for people in Japan. If for no other reason, then of course, they're still taking the, the, the debris from the site and burning it at various facilities around Japan, which is really just spreading that radiation around. I understand. Putting it up in the air, in the atmosphere. Um, it's certainly... If you can believe the hype, it's frightening. On the other hand, I've seen reports on what happened at Chernobyl. And they have animals running around there, and they're doing just fine. They're, the radiation is being picked up in their bones and in their bodies. But other than that, they're okay. 
Well, one so yeah, one there's thing a question that I, of whether radiation is quite as dangerous as some people suppose. Well, there have been, for example, there was a study that was published a few years ago that claims as many as one million uh, people have died as a result of Chernobyl, which of course is quite uh, uh, quite different than the official figure, which is, I believe, something like uh, a dozen or so people died as a direct result of the radiation from Chernobyl. So quite a discrepancy there. And uh, again, I think that the reality is somewhere in, in between. I don't think it's uh, as much as a million. I think that uh, those studies are... Um, uh, highly questionable, and a lot of people have come out about it. But I think that it, you're exactly right that the, the the surprise for a lot of people is that wildlife continues in in Chernobyl, and and that there's uh, there's kind of regrowing of of the area, and. A parallel to that would be here in Japan, where where I'm quite close to Hiroshima, which, of course, in the minds of pretty much everyone around the world, is e- exactly equated to the, the nuclear event um, in 1945, the end of the Second World War. And so I had that in mind the first time I ever vis- visited Hiroshima and was surprised to see a thriving bustling modern yeah. city and uh and quite a quite a, a an amazing city a really really I, I think a vibrant city and i think that's kind of surprising for people who who grew up hearing about it and seeing the pictures that in the aftermath and hearing about how it would be irradiated for tens of thousands of years and there's yeah. this bustling thriving city right on top of it so mm-hmm. i think yeah i think that there are some some questions about the way that uh, that radiation is treated in the media because it is kind of that that invisible boogeyman that hits on a lot of people's um nightmare fantasies at the same time, I think that there are causes for concern, and we do have to be, keep our eye, for example, on the thyroid cancer rates in the Fukushima region, especially among the young people who, of course, are most affected by that. We've got about two minutes before, uh, maybe three, three minutes before we take our next break. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what's happening in the Senkaku uh, Islands? The Senkaku the Islands, yes. between yes, for- Japan and China over five islands, if I understand correctly. That's right. They're, these are a, a small island chain in the East China Sea that um, are uninhabited, and up until very recently were not really controversial. They were assumed to be under Japanese control, but uh, but China, um, in, uh, in the late 1970s, I believe, started putting forward the idea that, well, traditionally and, and uh, historically, these are Chinese islands. And they've been sort of, in, in certainly in the last couple of years, more forcefully asserting that right. And really, the question is why why this island chain in particular because uh, it is an uninhabited island chain and uh, and doesn't really have any strategic importance except for the fact that it was I believe in the late 1960s that a UN uh, geo- geological survey showed that there were oil and gas deposits in the uh, in the area right around those islands so I think we're seeing this as sort of an extension of the resource wars that are shaping up between China and various um, powers around the globe as the Chinese, the gaping maw of the Chinese economy continues swallowing more and more resources around the world. I think that's why it's becoming a flashpoint. And so we've seen a lot of very worrying um, games of brinkmanship around those islands in in recent months, including several incidents where Japanese fighter jets were scrambled in response to uh, intrusions on on the airspace or uh, by ships in the area around these islands, etc., and uh, and we haven't heard much about it in the last several weeks, but uh, I think it's still a, a point of tension that's uh, that's continuing to rise between uh, China and Japan, which is really just one of of many tensions that is that's popped up in recent months and is only being fed, I think, because it it really does play into the political agenda of both the prime minister here in Japan and the new president there in China. 
we've got uh, probably 60 seconds before we take our break. To what extent do you suppose that the rising tensions between China and Japan is based in part by the United States pulling in its horns and becoming less of the global policeman than it's been since World War II? To be honest, I, I think it's the exact opposite. Um, we saw about two, uh, maybe three years ago now, the Pentagon specifically said they wanted to start the Asia-Pacific pivot, which is to withdraw some of their, their forces and resources from the Middle East, where they've been obviously occupied for the last decade, decade and a half, and putting that towards Asia. And we've been seeing that in numerous different ways, the, the start of a new marine base in, in Darwin, Australia, and the deployment of more naval assets here. We've seen um, military contracts with uh, with uh, the usual defense contractors in the United States increasing um, uh, for for specifically for the various U.S. allies in the region, South Korea, the Philippines, Japan. So I think it's the exact opposite. We're seeing more of a turn by the U.S. towards the Asia-Pacific region that I think is feeding into the conflict itself. Okay, we're going to take a break for some commercial announcements. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom and James Corbett. We'll be back in a moment on Financial Survival. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedars from our guest, James Corbett. James is calling us from Japan and offering us some insight on the ground where we can find out a little bit more about what's really happening in Japan and perhaps get away from the hype and get away from the understatement and hopefully get an objective assessment of what's been happening in Japan. We're going to also talk about the Russian-Ukraine problem. And how that may affect the petrodollar and so on. We're going to, that'll be our next subject. But Melody, did you want to say something? Yeah, if there's any listeners out there that uh, would like to ask James a question, if you can keep your question brief, uh, call us at 1-800-596-8191. That's 1-800-596-8191. Okay, James, we have a problem in the Ukraine that is, I don't know, it, does it strike you as all rational? And is it going to boil out of control or tempest in a teapot and this will be all under control in the next little while? How do you see this in in, uh, the Ukraine? Well, I see this as a significant geopolitical event that's taking place right now. And I think it will have consequences one way or another that I think will start to come clear in the next in the coming weeks. And uh, to a certain extent, I'm not expecting this to boil over into into heated military confrontation, but at any rate, it is sort of setting the uh, setting the the battle lines. I think for for what is being dubbed as the new Cold War. And as much as I might have problems with that that frame, at any rate, it is being framed that way, and thus I think it will become kind of a self fulfilling prophecy. And we're starting to see that happening culturally um, in in the Western countries um, with. Was something that I saw online the other day, which which again seems trivial and and kind of silly, but uh, but I think is very telling. Um, I saw an advert for a a taco chain in in New York City that was advertising, uh, Putin cannot eat here; he's barred from this restaurant until he gives up Mm -hmm. on the Ukraine or something. Which again is just silly, and of course just a silly advertising type of thing. But I think is reflective of the general the the way the conversation has really drastically changed in the last year or two. Um, You had uh, Romney on the campaign trail in 2012 talking 
talking about Russia as the greatest geopolitical threat to the United States. And at the time, the remark was widely poo-pooed and even seen as kind of being a bit uh, rash and, and, uh, and, and detrimental. But now I think most people would probably agree with that. So there's been a remarkable transformation that's taken place. And I think it's on the back of a lot of hypocrisy that's going on in, in that region now. I, I don't think that either side in this conflict is really an angel and is really out for anything other than their own political and geopolitical gain. But uh, but uh, I think this has to be seen as the end point of a series of, of really quite bold moves that NATO has been making in recent years to continue the encirclement of Russia. And uh, we see that mil- happening militarily with, with things like the ballistic missile defense shield. We just saw a new uh, U.S. advanced destroyer arrive in Spain as part of this shield back in February, which uh, is ostensibly against to counter the threat of some theoretical p- potential future Iranian nuclear weapon. But of course, is really, I think everyone understands, is really aimed at Russia and its ability to to um to really launch or defend itself against a nuclear strike and i think it's important to understand that uh that re- uh, in the last several years the us has not only failed to to dismiss dismiss the idea but has actually encoded into their military um uh terminology and and their their battle plans the idea of a first strike nuclear uh, use of tactical nuclear weapons which is again pretty unthinkable at this point in terms of where we are geopolitically but the fact that that still remains on the table and that's still justifying the the vast nuclear arsenal of the U.S. and, of course, of Russia is, uh, I think, pretty worrying and uh, and something that we have to keep our eye on as it continues to develop. We've watched Russia. Well, first off, it appears that you've at, le- you've at least implied that the precipitant for the problem we're seeing in Russia right now in the Ukraine and Crimea confrontation started with NATO trying to move in and surround Russia. Russia is, from that perspective, Russia may not be the innocent victim in this, but Russia is not necessarily the villain either, is it? No, I, I think that that would be all uh, entirely too simplistic to paint Russia as the the villain um, any more than I think Putin is, is some sort of hero. I'm certainly not implying that either. But certainly I think that the aggressor in this incident would be, would be the NATO powers and the uh, European Commission, which uh, with its uh, – basically this all started for people who don't know um, back last year as the Ukraine really started to, to uh, experience some very, very significant uh, debt problems that – that made it to the point where uh, Ukraine was having problem financing its debt and really did require outside assistance one way or another. Um, They were seeking perhaps a deal with the European Commission, but even as far as deals with the European Commission go, the one that uh, they were proposing was particularly weak. Um, It basically came with all sorts of uh, uh, strings attached to that and did not even offer kind of basic uh, um, uh, goodies for the the Ukrainian people, like uh, freedom of movement within the EU or freedom to work in the EU or anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. So basically at that point, Yanukovych turned to Russia, which was offering some incentives um, and has been offering incentives for quite a while in terms of gas discounts and the like. And uh, and that uh, obviously set off these these protests. But these protests have to be seen in the light of what uh, Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland admitted several months ago is the endpoint of a five billion dollar campaign uh, that the U.S. State Department has been involved in in the last several years funding democratic groups and democratic democracy building institutions in the ukraine so this is not just some sort of spontaneous thing that happened all of a sudden this is the end point of a very 
calculated, I think, um, long-term agenda that's been at work in the Eastern European countries generally and in Ukraine specifically. And I think we'd be naive to think otherwise. So yes, uh, attempts to portray Putin as some sort of ultra-villain in all of this, I think, is as, is as naive as believing that he's some sort of innocent angel in all of this either. Okay. Is Russia in danger? I mean, great peril. Are people seriously thinking about initiating a nuclear strike on Russia and wiping the country out? I don't. I don't believe that that's uh, that that's an imminent possibility. But it does in all of these types of conflicts. I think that these conflicts generally tend to be very, very much manipulated and are often, if not staged, at at least uh, often are more bluster and bravado than they are reality. But having said that, there's always the possibility that these types of conflicts will eventually um, spill over into actual confrontation, if only by miscalculation or or someone with an itchy trigger finger starting something that can't be stopped. And it is quite worrying that here we sit 100 years after the start of World War I with the assassination of Franz, uh, Franz Ferdinand um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was a pretty uh, random thing, uh, seemingly, to start an inter- a global conflict like what World War I became. And I think we've all probably uh, heard about the, the reasons for the interlocking alliances that, that basically started this, this sort of mechanism of war that couldn't be stopped. And we do sit at a similar precipice today, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen. But again, all it would take is some sort of fairly random event like the assassination of, of some leader or, or something like that and and who knows how it will result. So I think it is certainly a time of increased tension. And uh, the threat that is faced by the Russian people, I think, is an existential threat um, insofar as NATO really does not show signs that they're they're going to back down from this and, in fact, is showing every sign that they're going to step up the pressure. Uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, now uh, the Secretary General of NATO, now calling for increased uh, NATO budget in the wake of this crisis. Obviously, this justifies an increase in, in uh uh, the NATO members' contributions to NATO itself, and now we see Ukraine, the the newly imposed uh, Ukrainian coup government, now openly com- uh, conducting joint military exercises with NATO. So there's definitely something that's going on here that is ratcheting up tensions to a a point that we haven't seen since the end of the Cold War. So. Uh, again, it's a very dangerous situation, and there's no easy way out. And unfortunately, once again, it's the Ukrainian people who are really squeezed in this pincher movement and who who suffer as a result of it. And just not only, I mean, all the chaos and violence and 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 uh, and bloodshed that's happening there, but also just economically speaking, we see the new the new and uh, the newly installed Ukraine government under Prime Minister Yatsenyuk. One of the first things they did was come out to say we're, they're willing to cooperate with the IMF and and agree to any terms that the IMF wants. And under the new IMF aid package, which is going to amount to somewhere in the neighborhood of $16 billion, there's, uh, again, all sorts of austerity uh, strings that are being attached to this, which is particularly head-scratching because just a couple of months ago, the IMF said, well, you know what? We were wrong about austerity. It actually increases income inequality. It's actually a failed policy. They were advocating against the Australian government from implementing austerity measures. And now they're attaching them to the Ukrainian aid package. So uh, again, it's the it's the Ukrainian people who are going to suffer for the, for all of this. What's going to happen to the price of gold? Is it likely to jump significantly? Is it going to stay where it is? Some people predict it's going to fall. What do you see the global economy is doing to the price of gold and in what time frame? 
Well, it absolutely should be rising, just as the uh, the flight to safety trade uh, alone should. We should be seeing a spike in gold, and we have seen a, a little bit. Certainly, as uh, tensions are, are beginning to increase there, and they're entering into talks now in in Ukraine, we have seen gold um, edging back up above thirteen hundred. Now, sitting somewhere around thirteen fifteen as we're talking. Um, so I, I, we're we're definitely seeing sort of a, a, a rising trend of gold, but uh, the question is how much and how soon and or how long, and how long will that last? Uh, again, that's that's unfortunately not something that's that's up to natural market forces to decide because one of the the fallouts from the recent reporting on high frequency trading that's gotten a lot of uh, talk mm-hmm. in in recent weeks, including uh, the the big sixty minutes special and the new book that's coming out on the subject, one of the the things that people aren't talking about with regards to high frequency trading is not just manipulation of the stock market, but manipulation of gold and silver prices. And there was an interesting mm-hmm. article that appeared on uh, zero hedge the other day as by way of smart knowledge eu which uh, uh talked specifically about this this phenomenon and how high frequency trading is used uh, to attack the the etfs and the the gold market in general and uh and was talking about some very specific uh instances that you could cite for example february 29th 2012 the gld dropped one percent in less than one third of a second mm-hmm. um or uh, the etf uh, symbol slv uh exceeding seventy five thousand trades per second uh for 20 25 milliseconds again these are the types of uh fingerprints of the high frequency trading robot algorithms that are increasingly dominating the markets and as a result of this type of manipulation again we can't really rely on the dollar denomination of gold as any sort of indicator of gold's value in in this economy it is just another indication of the manipulation so i think that the real question is when will the manipulation if not end at least stop being so effective and i think that there is a point at which that will be reached i don't think we're there yet so um it's certainly conceivable that by the end of the year gold will be down on the year um, but I, I certainly do see that in the in the coming years, as the dollar continues to be eroded by all of the various geopolitical forces going on right now, gold denominated in dollars will definitely start to spike. Is there any difference? Is there a premium being paid on on gold in Japan, for example, as compared to the price that we find out of the New York markets? Do they pay more? In Japan, uh, they, or is they, it the same? Well, they do in in several senses. I mean, of course, there's the exchange um, issue, and so in the last year or two, we've seen definitely a drop in the the value of the yen on uh, as compared to the dollar, for example. So I uh, here buying gold here in Japan have seen a rise, a relative rise in the value uh, in the price of gold. We've also seen, for example, just in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, Japan just hiked hiked its uh, con- consumption tax from five percent to eight percent. So we saw. A a spike in buying ahead of that raise in, uh, rise in taxes of people basically trying to get in. And in fact, uh, some some investors or speculators just basically trying to make advantage of that 3% spread. So they were trying to get in and buy it and then sell it afterwards. So that we saw some gold dealers taking advantage of that and rising, raising their prices as well. But of course, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably know, in East Asia generally, there's been a gold buying frenzy in recent years, mm-hmm. uh, especially in China, where it's really taking off. So I think that there's a bit of a premium paid um, because people are willing to pay more for physical gold here in East Asia, um, simply because I think that they are well aware of the problems with the, the current uh, petrodollar regime and and the writing is on the wall. And I think it's being read by a lot of people, except, of course, for the talking heads on the, the mainstream news who are trying to 
basically lulled the American public into thinking that <laughs> that oh no, uh, China is buying gold at a furious rate uh, pace. But uh, but don't worry, I'm sure it, it's just a fad and and there's nothing behind it, which is generally what yeah, they're it's trying. It's kind of like a hula hoop. It'll be all over in a little while. We'll, yeah, we'll get past it. Doesn't do anything. We've got about, we have about forty five seconds left. Why don't you give us some information on where folks can find the Corbett report? I'm and whatever else you'd like to point them to, your blog, website, whatever. That's right. I'm at CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com. And that has links to all of the other things that I do, including, of course, as you mentioned at the top, the International Forecaster. I write the lead editorial there twice a week. So people should definitely check that out. Again, it's Bob Chapman's old publication and uh, is still continuing twice a week, uh, 30 to 40 pages every week. So I, I think it's uh, – sorry, every uh, every few days uh, on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So uh, uh, definitely a valuable resource for people to be checking out so they can check that out directly at theinternationalforecaster.com. All right, thecorbettreport.com. Cor- uh, want to thank you for being on the program, Jim. We're out of time. Melody, thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank, you, thank you, James. Me. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks to Maybe the producer. want to thank all of you people for listening. We'll be back, Melody, and I will be back tomorrow morning. In the meantime, with the good Lord, bless you, me, Melody. James and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.